So we're talking about the problem of evil today, and as I promised in, uh, in my email to all of you, we're going to solve the problem of email, evil today. So uh, you're welcome, uh, and uh, shouldn't be any more problems uh, about 11.15 today. Uh, that's actually not it at all. Uh, I want to maybe be helpful in your process, because that's about as much as I can hope to do uh, today. Uh, so there are going to be some things already that you're already disturbed. There's good discomfort in the room. Part of the job of a pastor and part of the job of the church is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. <laughs> and so if you're feeling uneasy today, that's okay. That's okay because that's part of the process. And we're headed toward, you know, at the end of this, some prayer to pray for things that uh, you're probably worried about and thinking about, about our country, Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, all that. So we'll get there, but we need to think through some things. And probably more than most of you here today, I imagine, uh, I have a front row seat on the challenge and the problem of evil. Uh, because I hear about it probably more than you do. Not because I'm a news junkie, but because I'm a pastor. And I am at the side of graves well, more than just about anybody other than uh, people who actually work at Tulake and so forth. And so I'm with people uh, in times of great struggle. And what I've noticed over the years is that uh, there is a cultural language that we have, particularly at times of death. And depending on the cause of death, the language changes. If a person lived a wonderful, long life, was ready to die and died in their sleep, uh, those services have a very different tone. Still sorrow, but the tone of the services, well, kind of got their wish. Uh, and the focus really is on the celebration of life, even though there are tears of loss and grief. But then there are the other ones that are very difficult. I remember a few years ago um, doing a service for a young man in his 20s uh, who got drunk and decided it was a good idea to race on First Avenue. And he found his life ending around a tree. And it was a massive funeral. And the rhetoric abounded that is so pronounced in our culture. Our words matter, by the way. Our language that we use actually helps form our theology. You may not realize how powerful language is, but it is really powerful. So the things that we hear and the things that we repeat, it's not a one-way street. That language that we use impacts the way that we think, our mental constructs. And so I just want to say this, that our words of lament express and shape our understanding of God in the world. They're not just expressive, they shape how we believe. And those beliefs sometimes get in the way. Here's some uh, that I hear a lot. And a lot of these phrases, one way or another, ultimately land the blame on God. Uh, one that I hear, I uh, did a, a service um, just a few months ago right here for somebody in the NA community. And I heard this one. Uh, we are all appointed a day and time to die. There's some comfort in that. Uh, but there's also a lot of discomfort in that. Uh, God must have a reason for allowing this accident or cancer or whatever the thing might be. Or this is all part of God's plan, 
And so we can kind of rest in that. And the final beauty is, well, God is in control, which all of these things, one way or another, are all ultimately pinning the blame of tragedy and evil on God. You connect the dots? Because to allow, for God to allow an evil thing to happen means that God could just as easily step in and prevent that thing from happening. God has all the power, we tell ourselves. And so all of these things, when God is that kind of powerful, all these things make sense. And like I said, there is some comfort with it. Uh, You might even know that some of these things are biblical, so let's just take a look. This is a very, very brief survey with very little critical commentary. But a lot of people in the Christian tradition uh, view the Garden of Eden scene with Adam and Eve and the tempter as sort of the entrance of evil into the world, that it was all wonderful. And then the tempter came in and tempted Adam and Eve uh, both to take a bite of the apple and, or the fruit, and that blew everything apart. That's not how Jewish people read the story, but that's how a lot of Christians have been taught to read the story. And so we see that as the entrance of sin into the world and therefore the possibility of evil in the world. But your middle school students who are paying attention, or your college students at least, will ask the question, why in the world would God put such a fruit in the garden to be tempting to Adam and Eve in the first place? God could have prevented all of this if he just would have cut down the tree in the wintertime. God is to blame, (laughs) even for the fall, what we call the fall. And of course, uh, Job's God-endorsed test. Now this is poetry, it's in the poetry section of the Old Testament, and so we gotta treat it as poetry, but still you have this scene uh, where uh, God and humanity's doing just fine, and here comes the tempter, Satan figure again. The prosecuting attorney is really the framework of this Satan figure at this point, and comes in to test God. You know, God, the only reason people uh, honor and worship you is because things are going good. You make life a suck fest, and people are going to turn on you like that. And so God says, well, have you considered Job? He is pure of heart. There's no way uh, he would turn on me. He and I are like this. (laughs) And so God gives the tempter permission to wreak havoc on Job's life so long as he doesn't kill him. But taking out his family, that's fine. With the blessing of God. And at the end of the story of Job, we are left with the hanging question. Job is wondering, why did all this happen? He's got not very helpful friends coming along trying to tell him why it's not happening, usually trying to blame Job, and Job is having none of it. At the end, God does not give the answer. (laughs) God says, were you there when I created everything? No, you weren't. So it's all a mystery to you, and that's about as good as it's going to get. And so, strangely, we're sort of given this mystery card to play in the face of evil. It's too complicated to understand. We just need to trust God, play the mystery card. God understands it all. It must be working somehow, and that's why we have what we have. Fast forward to Jesus' temptation. 
uh, in the wilderness, and he's tempted to do a range of things, all have to do with power and greed and uh, giving in to lust and these kinds of things for what the culture was wanting for him. Uh, but then he has other references along the way, so he's got this going. Uh, Paul, um, who came uh, quite a bit later, uh, he talks about it. He talks about it actually specifically in this way to the letter to the Ephesian church. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So Paul has this cosmology where you've got sort of this dark world happening, this underworld uh, that's happening. Uh, so there's that. Uh, so maybe that's the problem of evil, as we focus it purely on Satan and whatever that might mean. But that's difficult as well. In Revelation, uh, the last book in the Christian Bible, uh, we have this really weird uh, story that reads like kind of bad science fiction uh, and freaks a lot of people out, and it's one of the most popular Bible studies people want to have uh, because it feels like maybe we're at, I'm, and I'm absolutely confident that if we could scroll America right now in many uh, evangelical churches, there'd be a lot of conversation about end times today and that what you're seeing in Israel and Gaza is the precursor we've all been waiting for. So get your stuff together because everything could blow apart by the end of this calendar year. I'm not kidding. I am certain such things are being said right now. And I also want to tell you that just those same sermons have been said about every year when every conflict happens in the Middle East. So is it all just biblical prophecy? Is God in control of the whole thing? Is this the way it's going to go? I mean, by the end of the book of Revelation, uh, Satan is taken care of, and it's a new world, and everything's all fine. He's defeated. Did that already happen in biblical history, or is that to come? Lots of questions. And what I want to tell you is that there is an upside of believing in, in all of the rhetoric that we have. So all these phrases that we're used to, there's a real positive side to that. And the real positive side is simply this. If you uh, decide to go for and continue in a first century Ptolemaic cosmology, then you know who to pray to. It's God up there somewhere, above the steel dome, in the heavens. So when, you know, when Kelsey gets a touchdown today, maybe he'll point to the heavens to thank God, you know, for that great victory, right? Because I want to thank God. And so where's God? God's, well, God's up there <laughs> in the heavens. We do this culturally. And you know who to pray to, and then you know who to pray against. And there's a real positive side to that. I was thinking about this. If you choose to immerse yourself in that kind of cosmology, you're going to find some biblical support. You're also not going to find biblical support. It kind of goes both ways in the Bible. But the, the positive side is you're going to be looking for Satan, the tempter, at every turn, because he could be under every rock. The positive side of that is you're paying attention, and you're wondering when you see something come your way, is this from God or is this from Satan? So it makes you a little bit on guard. It also makes you a little bit more humble because you're pleading to God for help and your consciousness is focused that way. So it's not all bad. And in Christian culture, especially in America, and globally, really, um, this, is, this is just the water that the faith is swimming in. This has been around forever, and it's going to be with us. 
for a very, very long time. So what I want to tell you is this. Uh, if you're comfortable in it, if that's the framework that you are thriving in, and it's helping you be a more matured, Jesus-looking kind of Christian, uh, doing the things that Jesus did and loving the things that Jesus loved and people, have at it, man. Just, in fact, I would maybe should walk out the room because I'm just going to mess things up after this. And maybe, uh, maybe you're good just to stay. But if not, or if you know somebody who struggles with these questions, and maybe you're not comfortable saying that it's you who struggles, but somebody you know does, that they can't really live in that faith system anymore, that either blames God or blames a Satan, because if, if that's God, and God is portrayed, Jesus calls him his heavenly Father, and that's how we start our Lord's Prayer. So kind of means that God gets the Parent of the Year Award every year, meaning he's a great dad. If that's the case, then back to Darnell's song. <laughs> Why was he such a bad dad to so many millions of children? Who didn't make it. Where was that dad uh, when Hamas attacked Israel and then when Israel attacked Gaza and thousands of children suffer? Russia, Ukraine, same problem. Uh, famine in different parts of the world. Still dad of the year? People look at that and they think, I can't get behind that God if that's the way it is. Uh, 1960 was when church attendance was at an all-time high in the United States. And that was in part because there was a government-funded program in response to Russia's communism uh, to support the idea of good citizenship revolved around belief in God. It was around this time that in God we trust showed up on our coinage, all in response to Russia's atheism. <laughs> so you had government funding trying to get everybody together, and it was an interfaith thing. People of all faith expressions were saying, yes, it is a good thing to believe in God. And so with all of this horsepower of all the best marketing firms in the United States, this all coalesced, and you had the, the golden era of church, of church life in the United States. That's when my dad entered ministry. Back then, if you wanted to start a church, you just built one in a future suburb, knowing that it was going to be full five years later. That's exactly how it was. Church attendance was somewhere around 65% of the population every Sunday. Now, in today's climate, 90% of people believe in God whatever that might mean for them. But only 30% of people go to church in the United States. I wonder if this problem of evil and pain and suffering related to it are part of that. Furthermore, if only 30% of people who have any faith at all are going to church, and church is one of those primary areas where you get some kind of theological formation, 
either through a small group or a pastor teaching on a Sunday or what have you. For the 70% who don't go, they're kind of left with bumper sticker theology that's peddled every funeral, which they will attend. And so it's just more of the same rhetoric, which at the end of the day is unsatisfactory, pins the blame ultimately on God one way or another, and then we're invited somehow to fall in love with this God who's in charge of all the pain and the suffering and the evil in the first place. Do you see the problem that we have? It's a serious one. So with all the support that we have, it's still not going to work. And so, uh, just to kind of highlight uh, some of the modern problems that we have, um, modern problems include uh, our view of the cosmos. We no longer live in a Ptolemaic understanding. We know that the heavens uh, aren't just right above the stars, but they extend. There are an expanding number of galaxies going on and being created even while we speak. There is no up there there because there's no up. <laughs> so God can't be in the heavens because there's no heavens up there anymore. Do you, you know what I mean? There's no geographical space for God. And we've already said, you know, I saw this uh, during uh, COVID, if, if this is God's plan, God is a terrible planner. And I would show up on Zoom meetings and have this on my screen. People know I'm a pastor and they'd see this and they're like, is, is this blasphemy? <laughs> well, yes, it is actually. Um, but it's, a, it's legit. If this is all God's plan, then I think we can admit God's a terrible planner. Uh, and if God is truly all-powerful, then we have to say that God is heartless because God could fix stuff like Thanos in the, in the snap of a finger. Uh, and if God already knows the future, I don't have free will, and my prayers are moot. There's even a guy in uh, uh, Stanford uh, who is maintained, his, his writing got a lot of publicity in the last few weeks, that says from a scientific point of view, psychological point of view, that we have no free will whatsoever, that we are all products of everything that created uh, us to be who we are, and while we might think we have free will, we really don't, because we're just the outcome of all the algorithms that made us us, and that leads us to all the decisions that we make. Well, that's just as lame as blaming God or Satan, because I know there have been times when I've come to a fork in the road and I've had the little angel on this shoulder and I've had the little devil on this shoulder and sometimes I've gone the way of the angel and sometimes I have not. I'm probably the only one in the room. <laughs> exactly. So we know that we have free will because we've known that we have gone into a thoughtful space to decide which way we wanted to go. So the question is, in light of the modern problems that there are, when the paradigms fail, uh, do we still have faith? But my question for you is, what if the paradigm is the problem? Because language, all of it is metaphor. All of it. And so the language speaking the cosmology of antiquity is metaphor as well. They were doing the best they could to understand how everything worked together. And there are tensions all over the place in the Bible. There are clear indications from some scriptures that God is totally in control and can break in from the heavens and save the day. But then there are other scriptures that say that God is not so powerful, that it's really dependent on what people do, and God is going to be in flux with that. So 
you don't really have the choice to just say, well, I'm going to take the biblical approach on this. Well, the biblical approach is to recognize that you are in process, and humanity is in process, and we're using language, which helps us express, but even as we express things about the nature of God, our own expression is forming our understanding of God. Recently, I had somebody uh, challenge me on using feminine language for the person of God. And uh, I think there was one particular week where we were focusing on, on that in particular, and we even used the word uh, she and her for God and, and mother and this kind of language, and kind of shot back, well, that's, that's nonsense, you know? And I just said, your problem is not with me, your problem is with the Bible. Because these phrases come out of the Bible itself which is remarkable given its age. Language makes a difference. Language shapes our paradigms, and paradigm shapes how we think about things. The Ptolemaic paradigm of the Bible is not the only option. We live in a time now where we have other ways to think. Actually, they've been around a long time, but we're giving more and more light to them now, and that's what I want to talk about. Because an open and relational theology, which is a big umbrella that includes process philosophy and theology, our way of thinking is different that God is not up there, that God is everywhere. This is called panentheism, everything in God. God isn't up there because God is everywhere, present in everything. It's different than pantheism, not saying that everything is God, uh, but everything is in God. We live and move and have our being, as Paul would say, uh, in, this, in this ocean we call the presence of God. We also uh, identify that God's primary character trait is uncontrolling love. It's kind of redundant because love and its depth and its beauty is uncontrolling. But just to be clear, it's uncontrolling love. So while God has the most power, God does not have all power. Um, Tom Ord, in one of his uh, most recent books called The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Amnipotence, he did the biblical research to discern that the way we think about omnipotence, all-powerful, can do anything God wants to do, is not actually biblical. There are no words in the Bible that express our current contemporary beliefs about that. One of the great translation errors of our day, thanks to uh, manly men of old, uh, is the, the beautiful phrase El Shaddai, a Hebrew expression. El Shaddai, uh, in, the, in the Greek translation from the Hebrew, that's where we get almighty from. But if you go back to the Hebrew original, what is it talking about? You know the answer, the breasted one. A feminine image of God who is nurturing and caring for her children. What a different way to think. If only we'd held on to that, how different would things have been? And also, just the obvious thing here, God is spirit and has no physical features. So if you are uh, dying in uh, a lake or a pool or whatever, there's no hand of God to come in and rescue you because God has no hands. As much as we want to personify God and give God such features, those things don't exist for God because in Jesus' own words, God is spirit. And God is open. The future is unknown because we're free. This is a radical thought for some of us, but... It's actually legit. The more you think about it, God is, this is the troubling part, uh, the conclusion here. This means that God is not in control, yet is eternally loving. So we wonder, why have faith at all if God is not in control? Who's, who's driving this bus? And the truth of the matter is, 
We are driving the bus. We, with the presence of God, are driving this bus. We, with the nudges of God, which we'll get to in a moment. But the future is not fixed. It's unknown. So anytime you hear somebody at a funeral say, we're all appointed our day to die, please feel free to raise your hand and disagree with that person. I'm sure it'll go over really well <laughs> in that setting because it's just not true. That's a controlling move. Uh, and finally, God is relational. God woos but does not force shalom. And God always moves toward shalom, which is deep well-being, deep peace, uh, not just in ourselves but with everybody else. So when it comes to understanding evil, the problem of evil with open and relational theology, uh, we can say this, that God is all-loving, uh, omnipotent instead of omnipotent, which is not all-powerful, that God isn't responsible or deserving uh, for or desiring sorry, of evil because that's not a part of shalom. That's not who God is. So God can't be held responsible for something that's not coming from the heart of God in the first place. And God doesn't allow what God does not control. This isn't a cop-out. This is simply saying reality as our lived experience. Uh, we know that there are certain things that God cannot make us do because you said yes to the devil on your shoulder a time or two in your life. And God didn't step in and say, well, no, you're not going to make that decision today. I'm forcing you to go this way. And when we, when we went with this guy on this side, uh, things kind of fell apart. Well, they usually do. But God was still there to lift us up because God's presence and spirit is understood by the mystics of all generations is that God is love. God's openness means there's no preset plan. So anytime we think that this was all part of God's plan, uh, you can raise your hand again on that one because it's not, because that's not how it works. Unless you use plan with a capital P. I like the idea of, uh, Epperly talks about this in that book that we just finished up, uh, that instead of thinking about God's plan, which seems so fixed, like it is written in stone, this is what your life is going to be, think about plan with a capital P, meaning more like a vision. So God's plan for you is that you do well, that you experience greater and greater levels of shalom all the days of your life, not just for you, but that you are an agent of shalom in the whole world. That's God's plan. That can be expressed in all kinds of ways. There's not one path for that. And so that's a different way to think. God is relational means God constantly invites us towards shalom in every moment. We're affected by God, and God is affected by us, in flux with us. God changes with us. While God's character of, un, of uncontrolling love never changes, God is constantly resetting uh, God's response to us, depending on what we do. And finally, God's omnipresence means we are never far from God's voice, but we may be deaf, because I know that there have been times in my life when I did not employ meditation and contemplation to center down to listen for the still small voice and instead listen to the voices of fear greed lust power in my life and decided to go that direction instead so what do we do and how do we deal with this uh, well let me give you an example here um, my example is by the way I'm really Overviewing here, uh, there's a whole chapter or a whole book on God's uncontrolling love that Tom Ord did, which is much more extensive. 
Uh, he gets into a thing called necessary kenosis, which uh, is much too complex for us to get into today, but simply has to do that there are, there are aspects of God uh, that, uh, that because of God's uncontrolling, loving nature means that there are parts of God's power that, that God will not ever allow or honor because love trumps the power thing. That's a whole other sermon or series uh, for another day. But I think you really came here to talk about uh, Halloween candy, so that's what I want to talk about right now. So uh, when I was probably five years old, maybe four years old, I'm not sure, the younger I make myself in the story, the more innocent I become in this tale of woe. So uh, we lived in Overland Park, Kansas, and uh, the night before, or a few nights before, my brother and I made the rounds and scored heaps and heaps of Halloween candy. And uh, my brother left me alone in the basement uh, with his Halloween treat bag left unattended. And I listened to the devil on my shoulder more than I listened to the angel on my shoulder as I went through his, his bag, his score of candy. I listened a little bit to the angel, though, because I didn't take all of his candy. I, I let him have a full third of his candy. <laughs> Mark, my brother, reminds me. He tells the story where he kind of snuck up. He heard, me, he heard me talking in the basement. He knew nobody was there. And so he kind of tiptoed in there, and he's, he just heard me saying, One for you and two for me. One for you and two for me. Probably sing-songing it as much as I could because I was so full of joy at my new, <laughs> my new pile of candy that was coming on. Well, so what am I doing here? I, I'm, I'm wanting all this candy. Well, that, that didn't go so well. Mark uh, came in, and as you might guess, uh, he's five years older than me, which places him somewhere around 9, 10, 11 years old, somewhere in that neck of the woods. And he was not at all pleased uh, with, my, <laughs> with my division. Of, uh, of his candy, uh, most of it making it into my bag. And so it did not, uh, did not go well for me at that moment. Uh, he was not happy with me. I knew that I was in big trouble. Uh, he immediately told my parents they were not happy with me. Uh, I could have, if I had the wherewithal, have just raised my hand and said, this is all part of God's plan. <laughs> or I could have raised the other hand and said, the devil made me do it, right? There's all kinds of things I could have said at this moment which have been theologically supported in the Christian community. I'm really out of control on this, parents. <laughs> you should have raised me better. <laughs> but I'm only working with the theology that I have, right? And so uh, I didn't go with any of those because they would have fallen completely flat. At the end of the day, I was not a happy camper because I did not get to keep any of that candy. I was not a happy camper because I got busted and there were consequences with getting busted, uh, not least of which was a tense relationship with my brother, who I looked up to a lot, and now I've probably ruined part of his day, if not the whole day, and I've also kind of ruined the day for my parents. This is not what they were hoping for from their children, and they did not want to have to deal with this on that day. Every parent knows that our most favorite thing to do is to break up a fight between our children, right? So, um, so this is a minor, very safe thing to think about uh, because we're talking about Halloween candy. We can talk about the mind of a four, five, six-year-old kid and think about what would lead Peter, you know, to do uh, such a horrible, horrible thing. And we can think of all kinds of reasons. 
and none of them are pretty, and none of them really matter because we can just laugh at it. Do I just simply love candy? Yes, I do. So I want to give in to my gluttony at that point. Uh, did I care more? Was I more self-centered than I was other-centered in light of this was my brother's candy bag? Yes, I was choosing to be self-centered in this thing. Was I greedy then? Yes, I was greedy in that point. Uh, did I hold a little bit of, I don't know what, uh, toward my brother? A little comeuppance because of all the times he's earned, he's deserved to lose some of his candy. How, how did I justify everything that I was doing in my own head? And a host of other things that I cannot imagine that, uh, that, that elevated and amplified everything in me to grab more candy. Could it even be that around Halloween time, the marketing machine kicks into high gear on our favorite candies? And the only thing I could possibly think about as a five-year-old child for four weeks straight was candy, candy. Snickers, Baby Ruth's, Hershey's, oh my. I mean, the list goes on and on. How could I not give in to the cultural pressures that are forcing me to make these decisions? Well, let's think about more difficult situations. On personal levels, play it out. Why does a person do terrible things to another person? Why does a person give in to the little devil's temptation on the shoulder rather than listening to the higher angels of our beings? Why do we do things to hurt the people that we even say that we love and we do love? Why do we allow these things to happen? What's going on in us? And hey, take that to a cultural level, a community level, a national level. How is it? that in our land of the American dream, where all are created equal, how come, how come there are voices within us from our own citizenship that are saying, we're recognizing that we're not all the same, we're not all as equal as it appears to be, and we can trace it back to some historical decisions that none of you had anything to do with, and that they're part of our normal operating system. It's not hard to imagine that people generations ago uh, who had very clear, unvarnished attitudes toward others for any range of reasons, pick your ism here. If it's sexism, if it's racism, if it's classism, whatever the thing might be. And because of all the things in their worldview, leading them to say, we need to protect what we've got here. And if we can make these decisions here that are going to affect a lot of people for the long future, now, we're probably going to be protected. These things really did happen in our country and in our culture. It's part of our history. But if we don't know those things, if we never take the time to really wonder what's going on in me and what's going on in us, we're really kind of a rudderless ship. And frankly, one of the, one of the deeply disturbing parts of realizing that open and relational theology offers some solutions to the problem of evil. One of the most disturbing parts is that we recognize that we are complicit in some of it. In our individual lives and collectively as a citizenship and globally as a part of the human system in our world. Because in open and relational theology, we understand it this way. God is not in control. We are not pawns. 
we have agency to choose our lives. And these are real choices that we can make. And God, being uncontrollingly loving, constantly invites us to choose shalom. That's God's DNA. It's God's ethos. We can always trust that, that that is the way that God is leading us, by God's Spirit. And this goes across, cuts across every world religion. <laughs> All of them at their depth, God seeks shalom. It means that we can also expect other influences to offer competing invites. That's what I was just talking about. That the culture speaks, our context speaks, and time and history, the way we think. Uh, family systems speak to us, inviting us to keep going the way we're used to. Greed, lust, power, etc. All these things form a system that is challenging us, that will want to keep us on those rails. Which I need to just then give you a big clue. That if the way of God, which is the way of shalom, is a departure from those rails, it is very hard to get off. It's very hard to, to get on the off-ramp to join God in shalom. Because everything in us is saying, but this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we've always thought. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. And the fact is, you are. We're all mixed bags. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says, and yet at the same time we are conflicted because we use language to speak of things and language is metaphor and the things that we say come back and inform what we believe and it goes over and over again until, until something happens in our life and we finally lose our deafness and we can hear the still small voice calling us to shalom again and again. Choosing shalom isn't just about us, it increases shalom for all. So we're global in our thinking. We look around and we wonder who is not experiencing shalom and what can we do about it? Choosing against shalom decreases shalom for all and those decisions have been made by our ancestry and by us at different times in our lives. My question for you then is how has this stuff that I'm talking about today been true for you individually? And how has this stuff been true for humanity in general? And how might we minimize evil in our lives and the world in view of all this? And of course, how might we choose then to pray? Do you understand how this theological framework, according to Ord, who is the guy who claimed to be able to solve the problem of evil with this way of thinking, do you see it? Can you glimpse it? Or when God is no longer in control, God cannot be held responsible for all the things that happen anymore because we recognize that we are a collective. And if we just sit with this a while, some of this stuff is going to take some time you know, to unravel. And there's going to be literally the way our brains work. There's likely going to be a part of you that just completely dismisses everything I say and just agree with so many others that Pete is a clown. <laughs> and maybe, I hope he never preaches on this stuff again. But when we think about our own lives, when we think about what makes sense with our actual experience, the things that open and relational theology offer us make sense. Because we know at times we've been complicit. We know at times when evil has happened to us that somebody else did. Somebody else was complicit and we suffered because of it. And it wasn't God's plan. 
even if God redeemed us at the end, even if God saved the day with us and healed us and was comforting to us and helped us find our way again, like God did with Adam and Eve, it doesn't mean it was God's plan. So what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with your lives? And as we think about our individual lives, is there anything, situation right now, that you're dealing with where you've got the angel and the devil sitting on your shoulders? Metaphorical angel and devil sitting on your shoulders. You have something in you that is wooing you toward something that's probably not shalom. Could just be an attitude. Could be behavior you're thinking about. But can you be still enough to hear the small voice that is calling you to whatever shalom looks like in the moment, knowing that every moment that invitation is before you? Maybe it's not about your intrapersonal, maybe it's about your interpersonal life. Is there anything going on in your life with your relationships, with your significant others, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, whatever? How is shalom calling you forward? because that voice is the voice of God. You as people who live in this community, you as people who live in this nation, you as people who live on this planet, when you consider the violence that's happening all around us, the inequities that are present, which voice are you listening to as you think and view your fellow human beings? And how is your view in, 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 infected? <laughs> by shalom, so that you may be changed. How then will your hands and feet be agents of shalom as well? With what you say, with what you support, with what you raise your hand and say, we've got some problems here. How is shalom leading you today? So I'd like us to spend just a moment in prayer. We'll end with the Lord's Prayer. So that's coming up. There's your, there's your apple pie right there, the comfort for the day. You know that's coming. It's familiar and it's good, and we'll get there. But let's spend a time in prayer before we get to that. Join me. So first, God, help us. Help us be quiet enough to hear your still, small voice. For those of us who are here today or watching, struggling with belief at all in God, and hearing me say that God is known first and foremost as love, and you hear God is love, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I can believe in that kind of spirit. And I invite you to turn it around and consider that perhaps love is God. Can you hear? the invitation in its great depths that love is offering you today. Maybe it's in how you view yourself. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's how you operate as a citizen on this planet. What is love wooing you toward?
God, I pray shalom for every single person here and who will watch. That they will know that they are deeply, profoundly loved. Which will never change. And that love and love's guidance and presence is there at every step, at every breaking moment to support, to comfort, to heal, to guide, to strengthen, to encourage, to embolden. May love its have its sway to a person. And I pray for relationships that may be strained because we're human beings and this just simply happens. But I pray in the management of our conflicts that we find ourselves in, meaningful relationships, that we will allow love to sway, that we will be humble enough to be still, to ask the question, what is the response of love in this situation? I pray as we think about things in our nation that are horrible in terms of violence and what's happening globally. May love help break our hearts without immediately jumping to blame. God, just help our hearts break first. That we would empathize and sympathize with those who are suffering. For those in Maine who lost loved ones and the latest uh, mass murder. For the innocent victims in Israel and Gaza where evil certainly abounds, where there is not much listening, not much humanity, our hearts break. For those in Ukraine, for those in Russia, needless suffering, our hearts break. For those in parts of the world that don't have as much control over resources or debt and who suffer accordingly and really can't do a lot about it, our hearts break. God, may our love for our fellow human beings shape our eyes. May we veer away from the tracks which call us to blaming and hatred. And even on such global scaled issues, may we wonder, what is a loving response? What is the right way to pray what is the right way to speak that is motivated towards shalom you have called us to the dangerous work God of being agents of shalom it is counterintuitive and countercultural and yet the invitation is there because the invitation matters it matters for us it matters for a world in need so may we hear your invitation to us and say yes in the face of the problem of evil in our world, 
May we say yes again and again to the shalom that is offered us. As a mirror and a map, may shalom be with us. To that end, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Let's pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would like uh, to uh, ask any questions about this stuff uh, while everybody else is fetching their last donut, I'll be hanging out uh, here. Uh, if you want to just spar around a little bit, uh, I'm welcome to do that. Uh, or please congratulate uh, this dynamic duo on offering incredible music one more time. That was amazing. Yeah. Otherwise, have a great day. Thank you for showing up, and we'll see you next week for another delightful talk on something no one wants to talk about. All right. <laughs>